Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today's guest is running coach Richard Diaz. Richard, thank you for joining us today. Go ahead and I'll turn it over to you to give a little background to the listeners for us. Holy cow. What can I say about me? <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this earlier today and I started thinking about what it is I do. And I think what I am is I'm kind of like a gas station attendant for human beings. Okay. Okay. So I'm like a mechanic. You come in, you know, we look at the way you're moving and we try to sort out issues with the way you're moving and help you with that. And because I do VO2 testing and that kind of thing, it's basically direct gas analysis, like a smog check. So it's a smog check for humans and a wheel alignment. I guess, you know, to really narrow it down, I'm like a gas station attendant. Apparently, I've gotten to be pretty good at it because I have people that come to my gas station from all over the world. (laughs) (laughs) So... I mean, I really don't know. It's like, it's one of those questions, like, you know, you meet somebody, you know, you have a dinner thing, you know, and mm-hmm. people are new. And so what do you do? And I'm like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> How do I explain this, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you probably have the same problem, you guys. Like, well, I have this stick, right? I stick uh, yeah, this stick. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's kind of hard. It's like people don't, you know, right out of the gate, they, it's going to take them a minute to to try to sort it. And the last thing I want to do is say, well, yeah, I'm actually my trainer. Mm-hmm. Because the, to me, that's demeaning. It's like, that means that you're like this guy, almost like wearing tights, got a ponytail. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're working for 24-hour fitness, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm going to, by the way, I'll share with you, I'm going to be 68 years old in December. Hey, happy early birthday. Thank you. You know what? Thank you for saying that because most people say congratulations. Oh, they don't say happy birthday you. anymore. It's oh, like, oh, true. shit, really? Oh, damn, <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> oh, so, nice. But, but uh, the point I'm getting at is that at my age, you don't want to tell somebody, well, yeah, like I work a 24-hour. My hair is not as long as it used to be. I used to have a ponytail, mm-hmm. you know. Because I, and I'm not taking anything away from trainers, but, I mean, I've been at this for 30-some-odd years doing clinical diagnostics on athletes, and I've worked with every kind of professional athlete you could think of. You know, I've learned a lot over the years and shared some interesting time with very, very interesting athletes. And so it's just kind of hard to encompass what I do, other than just to say, well, I'm like a gas station attendant for human beings. So are you analyzing movements then of, like oh, you said, absolutely. you're you're looking at the person coming in. So are you're, I assume you're using uh, video recording playback to analyze yeah. gait pattern, foot strike. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's funny. It's like years ago, by the way, I used to own health clubs oh. and uh, I got out of that business and I started doing diagnostics professionally for athletes. I used to do all the preseason diagnostics for the LA Kings. You know, I'd go through a whole roster of professional hockey players and do anaerobic power tests, aerobic power tests, you know, give my two cents and reports to, to the team management after the fact preseason every year. I work with professional boxers and the like, but I used to really be involved in looking at the cost of work. What does it cost for you to accomplish the tasks that you're setting out to accomplish? Mm-hmm. simple, okay. simple question. And then trying to figure it out. What do we do to get them in a better place to be able to accomplish these tasks? And used to work a lot with triathletes. I actually produced the first, first professional triathlon for CBS sports in 1984 mm-hmm. on the island of Kauai and uh, did a lot of work with triathletes that, you know, became a bike fitter, learned 
how to fit people properly to a bike because mechanically, if you're corrupt on the bike, it never goes away. If your mm. seat's too low or your seat's too far back, you're always going to be at a disadvantage mechanically when you're trying to produce work on the bike. So it became mm. important to me to figure out how to get them appropriately on the bike before I did a VO2 test on them because otherwise they'd be at a disadvantage. Mm. And then because that's a closed chain exercise, what more dynamic is running. I mean, you no. virtually toss yourself in the air and hopefully you come to earth effectively so that mm-hmm. you can produce more force and lower the cost of work. Mm-hmm. So I became fascinated with the concept of doing gait analysis. And, you know, I'm not a physical therapist or I'm not a podiatrist or, you know, I'm not that kind of guy, but I look at things from a very pragmatic and logical perspective. I have a pretty good sense of physiology. I know how the body's supposed to function in the way you know, alignments should operate and such. But I started doing video analysis on athletes. I, I have a really bitchin' treadmill. I have like a, you know, I have a HP Cosmos high-speed treadmill that the belt moves in both directions and I have cameras set up. And I'll put people on the treadmill, let them run, put it up on a big screen and we sit down and go to committee. Well, here's mm-hmm. what I see with the way you're moving. You're overstriding, your heel striking, your body's, you're crossing midline when you're running, your arms are swinging, your chin is back. Start looking at these little, corruptions that they're producing and started to put the two and two together. Well, your hip hurts because of this, your Mm -hmm. knee hurts because of that. The problem with the plantar fasciitis and the chronic uh, inflammation that you're having here and here is because of the corruptions you're creating with it where you're moving. Having done this for a little over a decade, so many people that have come in and out of the the business to see me working with high-speed athletes and long endurance athletes and such, but hooker crook had international recognition for it. So I have people... I have now clients that are in Qatar. I have clients in Zimbabwe, Africa. I've got clients in the UK, like all over the world that we communicate virtually like this. You know, they send me video. I look at the video and analyze it in software, send it back to them, have a conversation and start working through, which is, by the way, how I got to meet Emily. And Mm -hmm. she referred me to you guys. Mm -hmm. She said, Richard, you've got to look into this, this stick mobility thing. And, you know, I started looking at it and go, Wow, that's kind of cool. And then I got I reached out to you guys, mm-hmm. and uh, lo and behold, I, I convinced you to come out and present at one of my clinics. People loved it, and I, I tell you what, you know, you guys must be great salesmen because I remember, <laughs> I remember, early, I remember early on trying to explain to someone when I first got turned on to it. I said, so there's like this stick, you know, and you, you know, and trying to explain to them, like, okay, when you move the stick, and, and the guys are looking at me like. Yeah, right. Can't I just like use a stick? You know, I I said, no, no, you don't get it. Like this is a special stick, you know, and then you show up and do a clinic and you you recall, I mean, the first clinic Mm -hmm. you did with us, we're out in this park, by the way, I almost got arrested that day in that park. Oh, what? You didn't see that happen, right? No. Like right after you were done, I was doing my thing, working with people and somebody that's like the park super (laughs) supervisor called the police. Oh shit. Because I didn't have a permit to be there. (laughs) <laughs> they kicked me out of the park. Oh, gotcha. Oh, but, but the point being is that I, you know, introduced you to, I don't know, about 20 some odd people mm-hmm. and you yep. put them through the, the workout in the park. They freaking loved it. I mean, to this day, they're like, oh my God, that was cool. I mean, every, I think everybody that was there bought a stick, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty close. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then the next time you came out and we did it on the beach in Malibu, mm-hmm. that was epic. Where else to do this, right? Yeah. But on the beach in Malibu. So we got some great shots on that one. Yeah. And so we're really excited, you know, that you're coming back out. And I just was talking in my, my group training 
program earlier. This dude, if you're not signed up for this clinic, being able to hang out with Dennis Dumphy on the beach with these sticks, I said, you know, I mean, I'm not even gonna try to give it any justice. You've got to, you got to come out and see what this is all about. Fantastic. And so I felt, by the way, I'm not, I'm ranting, but I fell, I fell in love with the run prep work you guys are doing. Because well, thank you. Well, so check this out. I, I'm in a community now. My, my my bread and butter, the people I work with, are obstacle course racing athletes. Mm-hmm. I coach some of the best athletes in the world in the sport, and they jack themselves up. They do not most. I mean, forgive me, anybody listening to this that's into Osara that you think I'm, an, you know, I'm dogging you, but I'm not. I mean, coming out of other sports, organization of work over time, periodization, developing mm-hmm. program. You know, I mean, go to triathlon for example. There are a million triathlon coaches mm-hmm. and they've been tossing this information back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they, they've got a pretty good sense of what needs to occur in order to prepare you for a triathlon. OCR is about five or six years old. Yeah. You know, they're throwing people into obstacles up, to, up and down mountains in freezing ass water. And nobody really knew what, what to do, you know, to prepare somebody for something like this. So mm-hmm. they jack themselves up. They're turning ankles. They are jacking themselves, lower limb injuries. I mean, knee problems, hip problems. Um, and, you know, I think it was Hunter McIntyre, somebody that I, I've worked with over the years. said, dude, he goes, you should be the number one coach in the sport because nobody out there is doing what you do. And these people mm-hmm. are killing themselves. And I go, really? And I, I didn't even have any concept of it. But now I put on these clinics all over the United States and I show up and, you know, they Based on demand, they request my presence. I show up, people sign up, and we do what we do. We do video analysis, we do we gate work, we do VO2 testing, resting metabolic assessments, we go through the whole thing with rock tape, show them how to deal with the injuries that they, they do with themselves mm-hmm. and put them through, you know, put them through the work. And so it's been interesting. Do you see you had mentioned a little earlier about overstriding? Is yeah. is that more common than people think? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so intuitively what ends up happening when people run is they want to reach and grab the ground ahead of them and pull themselves forward, which in itself lends all of the load to the posterior chain. Mm-hmm. So what you start noticing, this is why people don't like doing track workouts. Mm-hmm. They go to the track, they hammer the track, and they get that that little twinge right up under the, their butt cheek. All so right. origin and insertion of the hamstrings are jacked. They're, they're just really yanking down hard on their hamstrings. And then they get powerful enough to really injure themselves. Mm-hmm. So when you're old and fat and you try to you know run around the track, you're not going to create enough force to really cause problems to those muscles or the connective tissue. But you get a guy that's been really working it and he's trying to throw down a you know sub five minute mile, he's strong enough to hurt himself. But it, it's a perceptive thing. You just feel like you need to pull yourself forward, where in fact, effectively, you should be pushing yourself through space. So if your ground contact is correct, the force production is going to come off the ball of your foot and you're stationed almost directly over your foot when you hit the ground, which is going to allow you to create that force to project your body forward. In so doing, collectively from the ground, right up into your pelvic floor, you have the synergistic approach to stability, which, by the way, is what you guys do so well. You're teaching that through these isometric exercises that you guys do. You're really engaging. Again, I just thought it was I thought it was powerful stuff. Well, thank you. Well, the other thing, too, is, is if you're overstriding, then you really have no option but to slap that heel down on that lead foot. 
you you could you could still overstride and land on the bridge of your toes, True, but yeah. you still end up with this braking force. And mm. this braking force is, you know, for A, you're unstable. So you throw yourself up in the air and then you land on, on an unstable lever. And so all bets are off. So regardless of whether you land on your heel or land on the bridge of your toes, you know, the, the force production is putting you in a very untenable position. And it's just a function of, uh, the strength to weight ratio. How much of this can you put up with? You know, how fit are you and how much of this can you put up with? And so the, then you see people that, that are, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to people that are trying to run to lose weight. Mm, yes. Because they don't know how to run yet, but they're, they're hell bent on trying to run because they feel like the running is the, 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 the panacea. It's what's going to get them to this holy grail to drop that extra 20 pounds or 30 pounds but they're taking all this extra weight on a body that's not prepared to support it and putting themselves in an unstable position when they hit the ground and then they end up getting injured. So you see these people with the choke pat around the you know knee or the mm-hmm. neoprene sleeves or you know they're just jacking themselves up and you know it's just it's just sad to watch. So when you're doing your your gait analysis for someone do you go right into running or do you start with walking first? I do have them walk first. I usually don't shoot video of them walking because that's not really where the corruptions end up. Because when you're walking, because you're still in contact with the earth, uh, you're not as subject to produce the type of mistakes you make when you run, when you become open chain. Mm-hmm. And but you could, I've worked with, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I, I had a girl I, that she was 14 years old. She was grossly pigeon-toed and she came to me because they saw some videos circulating around the world of some work i did with an autistic kid that had some real serious issues you know her mother reached out to me and she says you know we've tried everything and you know they're talking about surgery and whatever and i brought her in we did some gate correction and this is a little deep for the for this conversation because there's application that i create to do some neuromuscular re-education essentially is what it is so in that case we we walk but we we put her in correction while she was walking to train the pathways to the construction of the the connective tissue and muscle fibers of what are trained to do what they do mm-hmm. you teach yourself to make the mistakes you make so my theory is if you can teach yourself to do it wrong you can teach yourself to correct it mm-hmm. so uh, we would put her through a pattern where we made these corrections and I have video I'll share with you if one day if you want to see it, where we took this girl within a day and she was walking straight when she left my my office the same day. And oh, I, that's I awesome. mean, it was curious to see how it went over time. So I followed up with her mother for a year, year and a half. Now, well, obviously, it was just one, not just one session. I actually saw her six or seven times, but mm-hmm. I virtually corrected the way she moved. And neurologically, she just was not finding the path. And we taught her what the path was. And through those corrections, we found that she adapted, you know, a year later, call her up, say, how's your daughter doing? She goes, what do you mean? I said, is she changed? Is she still the same? Oh, we quit talking about that. She's playing soccer. Everything's great. She's, you know, brought her back in, shot some video on her, the way she's running just perfectly well. Not another thought, thought about it. So yeah, I guess the answer is yes. I've actually had people walk, but more commonly it's running mechanics that I look at. Yeah, I was wondering because... You know, have you seen a case where someone runs really well, but they have poor walking mechanics and then vice versa? They walk really well, but then yeah. they can't get good running mechanics for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, it's I think what happens is inherently we teach ourselves specific patterns. So let's just say that you have some imbalances that exist that don't appear when you're walking. 
But when you're in flight, they show up. And then when you land, it looks precarious because you just basically hit the ground. And so let's say, for example, your limb wants to internally rotate when you're in flight, but when you're stationed on the ground, it doesn't it doesn't do that or not as severely. So it's not as obvious. So yeah, I've, I've seen that happen. You're a big proponent of barefoot, getting them barefoot to, yeah. to at least get them to understand what the foot is supposed to do or what sure. it should be doing. Yeah. Because a lot of the footwear is is creating is cutting off a lot of that communication oh it's terrible it's terrible and i think that every podcast i've done i think the conversation comes up with me and i think that uh hoka is right now looking for someone to assassinate me (laughs) because uh i've been so staunch um you know you know you know what i'm talking about right Mm -hmm. you get yeah it, it isn't just hoka there's other companies that have been chasing the money there are more people that don't know what to do than there are the people that do. So if you're marketing a shoe, you're going to go after the dummies. You're going to go after the people that don't know any better. And you're going to, you're going to uh, perpetrate more of that falsehood. Oh yeah. So like, look at the cushion on this. If you have this, it's going to feel really good when you hit the ground, but you know, what happens is you're, you're basically dissipating all that effort information you're looking for from the ground. So your central nervous system is put to sleep. It doesn't know what to do. It's like, I've made this, this analogy before where, you know, I punch you in the face and then you duck, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a little late, right? <laughs> That's very true. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Is, is it more of a mental block with runners? And I, I think as coaches, we've always kind of joked around that runners run to rehab. They run to strength train. They run to recover. But and when you ask somebody, to, hey, we need we may need to cut back on the amount of running that you do just short term, you pretty much have like the look on their faces. Oh my God. No, I know. Yeah. Well, it's because it's, it's their, it's their sanctity. It's like in the gym, you know, back in the day uh, when I owned gyms, I had these big muscle bound guys that want to do these really, really heavy uh, incline presses and they're starting to jack their their shoulders up, their rotator cuff, you know, Mm -hmm. guy comes up to me and goes, ah, man, he goes, what do you think? He goes, what can we do about this? I said, Maybe you should back off the weight for a little while and just recover that shoulder. Well, no, no, no. I said, no, you're right. Work through it. (laughs) (laughs) I figure sooner or later, he's going to figure it out, right? He's going to have to stop. Yeah, you would think so. On the flip side of what you're asking or, or commented on is that traditionally what happens with runners when they injure themselves is they take a break. They're forced to take a break. Yeah. And then so they rest for a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. And or maybe even uh, prescribed by a physician or a therapist where they say, look, you need to take five weeks, six weeks off, whatever. No running. Then, OK, it feels better. The pain's gone. And they go right back to the mistakes they were making before they injured themselves. And so I'm the guy in the middle. You know, I'm the guy that after they went through that episode two or three or four times, they get so frustrated that they they found me somehow. And I take a look at the way they're moving. I said, well, look, clearly this is why every time you go out and run, it hurts. It's because you're doing this. Mm-hmm. I've had people come in injured. And I, I'm, God is my witness. Come in injured. Oh, my God. I don't think I was, I was going to cancel the appointment because my, I have the worst case of shin splints. Mm-hmm. Change the way they approach the run instantaneously running pain-free. Just, a, just change the approach to the work and Literally, instantaneously, no pain. I've gone and done clinics on the East Coast where 
someone shows up, big, you know, neoprene sleeve on the knee, on their way to get an MRI. You know, everybody's saying, yeah, probably got a torn meniscus. You jacked your knee up. You can't run anymore. Be on an elliptical. They have those kind of conversations. Mm -hmm. And they paid me to be there. And they're mm -hmm. like, you know, looking for a refund almost, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? Be patient. Let's just take a look. Let's, you know, I'll go through, maybe do some instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization, try to reduce some of the inflammation, get them so, so they're somewhat out of trouble and take a look at the way they're moving for a few minutes and then change the way they move, able to go through the clinic all weekend pain-free. Pain-free. Looking at me like, oh my God, who is this guy? And I didn't, you know, honestly, to me, it wasn't rocket science. It wasn't like, oh my God, I got this touch, right? Mm -hmm. It's just looking at things logically and saying, you cannot put that square peg in a round hole. You just can't do it. You've got it. You got to take a look at what you're doing. You've got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Mm -hmm. It's become a career for me. Because you're changing basically just the input. Sure. Because they're lacking that input, right? But they're exactly. expecting a better output, but they're not giving, they're just, the input's not correct. Well, and I'll tell you what I've learned. And, and this is just having done this for years. And I've written some books, talked about this at great length. I have videos that are up on YouTube that kind of they try to demonstrate what you should or shouldn't do. But what I've narrowed it down to is the singular important thing in this is changing perception of your effort. Because people will think that they're doing something that they're not actually doing. Mm -hmm. So let's just say, for example, I showed you the corrections. And while you're in front of me, everything is rosy. No pain, working out. It's clearly the path. Then they get off on their own. And they start jogging with their friends and they're having conversation. Their mind goes somewhere else. They get lazy and they fall right back into the corruptions that they were that brought them to me to begin with. And their assumption is that I changed the way I'm moving, but I'm still having pain. This doesn't work. What I've done lately that I found to be really effective, it's probably going to put me out of work right now, is I'll put an iPad on a uh, stand, like a mic mm -hmm. stand, in front of them. Running on the treadmill, my treadmill goes backwards. So you can mm -hmm. run facing away from the controls. Oh, nice. So they could be watching themselves from the side. I'll put a camera on the side. So they see a side view of themselves running while they're looking forward into the iPad. So now that I've explained what needs to occur, they could physically see whether, in fact, they're they're creating those changes that they hoped that they were creating. It's It's really fun to watch because... Their perception is they think they're doing it and they go, oh, my God, I can't believe that I wasn't. If I felt like I was way, way up in my toes where, mm -hmm. in fact, they were really on their heel, mm -hmm. you know, or they thought, oh, I got it. And they're actually overstriding. So they start to correct it. I could put that iPad in front of them and leave the room and they just fix themselves because now their percept the perception of the work has just been uh, changed. And then you have this new reality. You start developing this new reality of what it's supposed to feel like when you do it correctly. Mm -hmm. then that's been huge. I've had people, you know, chasing down the, the setup that I have because they found that to be very effective. Do you ever do, uh, I guess, the, the running analysis on like on a track or anything? Because I know <laughs> treadmill is, it is different than running on, you know, on turf yeah, or on. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll do both. People will argue that uh, running on a treadmill for them is different than running outside. Mm -hmm. And the the distinct difference between the two efforts is that running on a treadmill is what they refer to as rate independent. The belt is moving regardless of what you do. Mm -hmm. So essentially all you're doing is trying to keep up with the belt. Mm -hmm. Where running outside is rate dependent, which means that you're not going anywhere unless you either push or pull yourself through space. So from that perspective, it is different. But the nuances in the way you move are not different. 
You'll, when you run the treadmill, you're going to do the things you do when you're outside. And I've had this conversation, and we'll call it an argument on many occasions, <laughs> where someone says, no, no, you know, or, or they might say something like, well, actually, I run better when I run faster. I said, do you? Well, let's see. And then I'll, you know, I video it, I speed up the treadmill to whatever they thought that, you know, was their, you know, their go-to move and play it back for them. So, oh, look at that. Are you still overstriding? Are you still heel striking? Yeah, I think you are. But now you're doing it at greater velocity. <laughs> so now you're really starting to hurt yourself, right? So yeah, but trust me, I've I've twisted and turned this thing any way you could possibly imagine. It always comes back to being relatively the same scenario. It's like there's there's just a handful of mistakes people generally make. And unfortunately, most people make most of them when when they run without being educated, without being trained. When we're running, what is the importance of upper body movement associated to help us run better? It's huge. So for arm swing, for example, uh, a lot of people have their signature arm swing. And I, I give them names, right? I have these cute little names for the way. I have what I call the Gucci, where it looks like you're carrying your purse, you know, on your own. <laughs> and they got the T-Rex, where they kind of like do this. Mm-hmm. So they, they all have these little unique trademark moves when they run. But you have to realize that these levers that you're swinging through space will in turn cause your shoulders to rotate, which will in turn cause your hips to rotate, which in turn causes your knees to rotate, mm-hmm. plus you're in flight. So you get this concomitant response where if you throw your shoulders around this way, your leg wants to go across the other way to find counterbalance. So now as you're in flight, you've caused your right leg to go in front of your left leg. And then you end up on the barous edge of your foot. So the, the pinky toe side of your foot. And now you have a terrible collision. So you're laterally unbalanced. You're imbalanced fore and aft. And you just landed on a bad side of your foot. And then so you kind of go down the road like this, right? And it, it's, it's a problem. And by the way, that's the hardest thing to correct. I found getting people to square up their arm swing is a nightmare for me. I can get them to land properly, but they'll try to screw it up with their arm swing. It's, it is probably one of the most difficult things to correct. I don't know why. And I mean, I'm sure there's a, there's a, an intelligent response to it, but I just don't know what it is just yet. I wonder if it's like a thoracic mobility issue or something like that, or just well, yeah, so obviously, you know, you, you know, you guys are kings of this stuff, you know, it's like, if you have some uh, disruption in your spinal column, uh, muscular imbalances, maybe maybe your you know your QL is locked up on one side. You could have some something you know in your traps or your rhomboids. It could be something that's just not operating effectively or synergistically with the rest of your torso. You know, you kind of get this you know hitching your giddy up because you're you're just kind of dealing with that. You're contending with that disruption wherever it might reside. So, which by the way is one of the reasons why, again, I like the stick thing is because you're you're creating such global mobility while you're trying to encourage stability. And I, I don't, you guys familiar with spinning? I'm sure you are, right? Mm-hmm. Spinning program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know who Johnny G is? No, you no. brought him up before to me though. Johnny oh. G, yes. So Johnny G was is the founder of spinning. He's like, he created spinning. An amazing, an amazing program when it was hot he was worldwide this guy did a spinning class with a thousand people on the steps of the kremlin he, he did he had i don't know how many hundreds of people on a rooftop at midnight in san paulo brazil he's been with his little program that he devised on this little uh, monarch stationary bicycle in his garage you know he evolved into this global phenomenon and him and i were friends and uh, actually i took i, I was 
a spinning instructor in my club and, you know, one of the first hundred spinning instructors in the world, probably. And I used to tease him. I said, you know what? I can throw this guy a tomato can, a soup of tomato or a, a can of tomato soup. And he could turn it into a fitness program, you know, because he just had this thing, you know, he just, he could take it and say, oh, well, if we move it this way and we can cause this to have happen, this is going to be an exercise that would be beneficial. That's what you guys did. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, when you think about it conceptually, it's you have to have a profound understanding of the way the body's trying to function. And then the tool is just a way to encourage the body to be supported as it's going through these ranges of motion. If I'm if I'm looking, if I'm a runner or just a recreational runner, what would an appropriate way to warm up before my run would be? We look at the way a lot of people generally kind of warm up and we're kind of like, yeah. Like what would you? What would your prescription be, or what would your advice be? Well, um, first of all, I, I, you know, and I, I get into trouble when I say this, but you know, I'm old, so I get a license for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not a fan of yoga. Okay. To, to me, yoga is kind of like broadcast supplementation. You know, people buy the little packet with 45 different pills in it, and there's the one thing in that packet that was really beneficial, and the rest of it's going to get pissed out. Right. And so I think that people can tend to get overlax. You know, you get your hips way out of contortion and you start have laxicity in the, the, the shoulder girdle in the hips and you start causing problems for yourself because you're going through these contortions that your your body just doesn't want to go to. And some people more more uh, akin to it than others. So I don't like just uh, stretching for the sake of stretching. And as a matter of fact, in the first book I wrote, I did a tremendous amount of research on stretching because I was curious. And I come to find out the greatest amount of study that was done into stretching and preparation for exercise was done by the military. Mm. They wanted to find out whether they should actually take their troops in basic training and put them in a stretching program, which they don't do, by the way. No, no. The veteran. Yeah, no. So why? They found that if you stretch and it is beneficial to you, you should continue to stretch. If you don't stretch, don't stretch because you're likely to injure yourself. That's the conclusion. So they just left it alone. Now, for me, I know there are people that have short heel cords. I know just chronically from loading up the musculature, your IT band tends to get tight, pounding on the ground because you're maybe running poorly. You start loading up your spine. Now, now you, your, your, your lower back muscles tend to be chronically tight to try to protect all, you know, maybe you're holding your head back. Maybe you're hunching your shoulders. So you start to develop chronic disruptions in your process, which should be addressed. So commonly what I see with runners is these issues tend to be in the lower quadrant. They, you know, their calves are either really fired up, the issues in the feet, maybe the, shoe, the shoes are causing their feet to get stupid, their feet are weak. So they start ending up with uh, overuse injuries like plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, you know, shin splints, all these type of things. So I like to see them spend time working on those areas, the areas that need to be addressed. So rather than wasting an hour trying to go through all these yoga postures, let's just cut to the chase and get after the things that need to be addressed. Again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm pounding the drum for you, but going to chasing you guys down for the way by doing the, the, the run prep drills that you guys do really, really help to strengthen the feet. Obviously, obviously all this work you're doing is barefoot. Mm-hmm. So getting up on the bridge of your toes and, and you know going through ranges of motion laterally, circular, lower body, the hip rotation, all this stuff that you're doing 
is an amazing setup for prep in a run. And I, I sell it like hotcakes to people. I'm telling you, my clients, maybe I, I've you know just met them or, or they reached out to me. I, I go to YouTube. I pull a couple of links off your one, one of your sites mm-hmm. or one of your uh, training programs. And I said, follow this. Get this. I've got sticks that are that are being sold in parts of the world that you're probably surprised the sales came from. Where'd that sale come from? That was me, dude. <laughs> well, thank you, man. Appreciate well, thank it. You, thank you. Seriously. So, yeah, it's, it is important to, to prep the feet. And I think that's, unfortunately, we've trivialized the, the function of the feet or the importance of the feet. I'm sitting here right now barefoot. I, you know, again, I'm an old man. I've, uh, you know, I've been in better shape in my life, but I can tell you my feet are amazing. I spend 90% of my life barefoot. And the reason is, fortunately enough, because I work from home, I don't put shoes on unless I have to go somewhere. And I don't have to go somewhere very I have a brand new Mercedes Benz that's like two years old. It's got 4,000 miles on it. That's oh, not wow. Wow. I wow. I don't go anywhere. Jeez. It's because you run everywhere barefoot. <laughs> <laughs> my wife looks at me, she goes, we're still on that car. <laughs> that and the cameras. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm just a waste of resources. Here's another thing that maybe do we spend too much time running on concrete flat surfaces versus more natural surfaces? So that's an interesting question because I just did this podcast with Emily about this. Okay. Because uh, I have people that feel that because they've transitioned from trail to road, that the road being hard is why they've developed an injury or vice versa. People that were running on the road transitioned to running on trail because somebody sucked them in saying, oh, no, you can't run on the road. That's too hard for you. Run on trail, softer, natural surface is better for you. But the, one of the things that she's been into, and I'm sure you're familiar, is this preactivation. Because when you start to develop this, this kinesthetic awareness, I guess for lack of a better term, through the kinetic chain, the, through the afferent information you gather from the ground, your body responds to the surfaces. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and I used to make this argument. It's like, if you come up, uh, stand on a chair and jump onto a floor, hard floor, your body will become supple to react to the ground force. If you jumped onto a bunch of pillows, your body will become rigid to react to the softness of the surface that you land on. So your body is reactionary. It tends to want to adapt to the surfaces you are, you're dealing with. Now, you could throw it a curve. You could be like a road trail runner or a trail runner for a really long time and decide to get on the road and all of a sudden have all kinds of problems because you're just not reacting very well to that surface. And so I really think there's a lot to be said for that. And one of the things that she's been into is preactivation where she'll suggest, take your shoes off, let your feet feel the surface, you know, teach your feet what you're dealing with and then put your shoes back on and go to work. I was really, I had resistance to that for a long time. And then I started to think about it logically and circumstances that, uh, helped me to better own it. One of the things that I thought was, uh, you know, I use this, this this comment a lot with people when I'm trying to teach them this, is that if you've ever done a box jump, you know, you go to the gym and mm-hmm. you're approaching a new height of a box jump. So you're standing in front of a box, just say lack of, uh, or for conversation's sake, let's say it's 30 inches tall. And you approach the box and you're getting ready to jump up on it and, and your central nervous system is, isn't with you on this. And you're like, yeah, you kind of, uh, you just kind of approach it, but you don't jump, right? Mm-hmm. Stand on the box and jump down. Give your, your brain some feedback. Okay, the distance is this far. This is what the reaction is going to be like. So I have, I used to do this with guys. I used to teach vertical leap. Stand on the box, jump down. Stand on the box, jump down. Stand on the box, jump down. Okay, now jump on the box. Boom. 
nailed it. Where they may have had resistance, their CNS is just not buying it. Like, I don't know, man, this is not going to go well. And it just doesn't work out. So I think that looking at it from that perspective, you start to see this pre-activation is really a thing. Your CNS does want to respond to the circumstances you, you present it with. But it just has to be taught. Do you also think it could be a, a volume problem? So like, let's just say someone's running 20 miles on the road and they say, hey, I'm going to go run 20 miles on the trails. But because we're on a softer surface, we do have to create more muscular force, right? And yeah, then you have, you have hills to deal with and all that. And Yeah, there, there's definitely uh, some transition concerns when you change surfaces like that because the surfaces are not you know unique. I mean... There's, there's always undulation and change in the surface. And the recruitment patterns when you land are going to be way different than they are when you're consistently hitting a flat surface when you're running. Structurally, it's going to be more demanding. But I think that you that's obviously another concern. You have to train yourself for that. So, yeah, volume, I think, is something we've we've discussed at length is, is people don't really think about that. It's like the lady that sued um, brought the class action suit against uh, Five Fingers, Vibram Five Fingers. Where she, her case was, well, I was running this distance, and so I bought these barefoot shoes, and I kept running the same distance. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, but there's a whole, the volume needed to be brought way down. I mean, yeah. way down. Instead of understanding her saying, okay, I, I did this incorrectly, or I attacked this incorrectly, my my path was incorrect. She blamed the tool instead. Oh yeah, right. Well, the the the, the countersuit was uh, against the uh, was it uh, Reebok with the you know the rocker type shoe. What, what yes. Are they uh, yeah. They got right? sued or too, ske- right? Because they were telling sketcher, yeah. yeah the sketcher. They were telling everybody how you know that was going to make your butt you know like a nine year old boy or something like that if you wear these shoes around. Yeah. Uh, it's just false advertising, but uh, you know you're right. So. People, when Born to Run came out and everybody went hog wild into these uh, boat slippers, which are basically the five fingers, Mm -hmm. trying to run on their forefeet and just scads of injuries occurred from that. And I was I was doing gate work with people back when that was going on. And I used to have all the guys with the, you know, the elevated heels, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like a. You know, it's like you're falling off a ledge. And then they went to this transition of completely zero drop and no protection. Mm-hmm. And they still landed on their heel or they wanted to make sure that they were landing forefoot and they present their foot to themselves when they're running by overstriding to see, in fact, that they're landing on the bridge of their toes. Oh, interesting. So so then they wow. started having metatarsal stress syndrome. There's all kinds of Morton's neuroma and all kinds of maladies that occur within the, the, the forefoot structure of the feet. They just weren't landing well. And and so, you yeah, whatever transition you're going to make is going to require you to cut the volume down because... Mm-hmm. That's going to be less stress, you know. But if you're wrong, you're probably never going to get your volume up, right? If you can, yeah. if you're making mistakes with less protection, you're you're going to be facing a, a catastrophe somewhere along the way, no doubt about it. Well, I know myself personally when I transitioned out of my Nikes to Vibram Five Fingers. Uh, I mean, I I took three months before I did my very first run in my in my new shoes. Like I literally just walked around for three months in them. Because I just wanted to make sure that I was not going to overstress the feet and create some damage that's going to set me back. I mean, my, the whole point is to keep moving forward, not to have two or three steps back, right? It's a tough transition, you know. 
And uh, I have I have friends in the running community uh, in Africa. One of my one of my friends was uh, 800 meter national champion in Burundi. You know, we, I had that conversation with you know the the real deal African runner that you know he lived. He, the guy hunted antelope with a spear with his father. Okay. Oh through the jungles and shit. I mean, this guy was the real deal. And he told me, you know, that when he, when he was a kid going down the mountain to get water for the family, clay pot on his head, back up the mountain, six miles to school, back and forth, pretty much all of his life uh, as a, as a youngster barefoot. You may remember Mary Decker Slaney. You remember her? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And Zola Bud. You remember mm-hmm. Zola Bud? Yep. Did a clinic with Zola Bud some years ago. And she told me growing up in South Africa, they didn't put shoes on their the podiatry or the the, uh, the pediatricians would tell the parents, don't put shoes on your kids till they're like 14. Mm, oh, uh, because wow. you, you're gonna corrupt their their growth and their 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 development. And she said that she just as she grew up, she just didn't wear shoes. And you remember her running, you know, she uh, what the, the UK, I think she was a five thousand meter uh mm-hmm. record holder. Mm-hmm. She ran barefoot on the track. And she put a little piece of duct tape on the ball of her foot because of the abrasion from from the tartan tracks. You know, she didn't put shoes on for the sake of having to put shoes on. She put shoes on because she needed to. She said it was it was socially acceptable for the kids to go to the theater or go to a restaurant or whatever and not have shoes on. In our society, we're, our feet are just weak. We just, you know, we, we've not had the capacity to develop the strength and the tolerance that a lot of these people inherently developed because of the society they were brought up in. You know, somebody who drinks the Kool-Aid at 40 mm-hmm. years old, my lawyer never took his shoes off except for to take a shower and go to bed. I got him up uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> right? He goes, hey, you think I'd get up Kilimanjaro? I said, put him on the treadmill barefoot for the longest time just to start to develop this kinesthetic awareness, start developing strength in his feet and his structures. Old guy, lousy shape. Got a picture of him here holding my T-shirt up on the top of Kilimanjaro. <laughs> You know, but what I'm getting at is that we as a society are just not accustomed to being in that circumstance. And so we read something or we, you know, we get excited about something and we immediately want to run into it. You know, you were wise enough to realize you needed some time to adapt to that change. You come out of a cushy shoe for your life and then decide like in a week you want to try to run a 10K you know, almost barefoot, your feet are not prepared for that. Well, I was really surprised, even with my barefoot training, when I did half dome, I was really surprised at how fatigued my feet were just doing half dome in that, at the end of the day, I was like, damn. And so I had minimalist shoes on there too. So even like I said, and I spend most of my day barefoot, Yeah. but even then I was like, man, I can't even imagine just trying to think that I could go into this just full steam ahead like normal after that transition i I, no wonder people's feet are just absolutely killing them if they do that too quickly one of my friends just made the guinness book of world records for the uh most number of marathons run barefoot he just ran 211 marathons barefoot he runs a marathon every saturday Mm. (laughs) and right now i think he's uh he's getting close to 60 years old i've known him for years and i since i've known him He's always run barefoot. And I used to tease him. You know, I said, dude, you're never going to get a date. You know, look at those. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to invite a girl to go to dinner some night, you know? What what are you going to do with those things? You look like a, you know. I told him, I said, you look like a hobbit, dude. Uh, (laughs) And I I teased him, you know, but he he doesn't get injured. 
he does not get injured because he's taken he's taken the time and developed the capacity to, to run. He's as healthy as a horse. I mean, the guy is really a, a, a phenomenon just to watch. Now he's not very fast, mind you. Yeah. But he runs paved roads. You know, he ran the Lake Tahoe Triple. I think probably four or five times. That's three marathons in three days: Friday, Saturday, Sunday, barefoot. Mm. And this is not a young buck. I mean, this is an older guy and he can do it. Uh, your feet are designed to put up with the work. It's just that we've not allowed our feet to be developed to the capacity that they were de- designed to provide. That's, that's the problem. So yeah, it's a bad idea for someone just to, you know, Oh, look at that. I'm going to get those barefoot shoes and you run a marathon next week. That's not going to work. I think it's just our human nature to think, oh, okay, well, I, if I do this like this, then I can go into that. Well, we don't take the time to, to seek out the knowledge or the coaching because it is something absolutely it's different. It's brand new. So if you don't know how to use a tool, why would you think that you you know you would want to get some expertise on how to use a new tool, right? Well, it's it's just how we are as a society. My I used to have a storefront sign on the front says "Natural Running," and all it was was me, my lab, and a training facility in the back. A half a block away is In and Out Burger. My parking lot's empty, and they look like Disneyland with cars parked. <laughs> Right. Trying to get very one of them true. burgers, right? right. Very so, true. Investing a little bit of money in developing your body and keeping yourself healthy and getting to a better place so you, you can enjoy life. Now, the burger sounds a lot more entertaining than, than all that. That's what we deal with. You, you guys and me both, we have to contend with that. That's very true. That is very true. You had mentioned isometrics earlier, yeah. and I think that's something that's really beneficial to anybody that wants to be running for any substantial amount of time. Because it helps really develop that neuromuscular control that they may be missing out in some part or some link of that chain. Well, yeah. So, you know, what we've been brought up to think in terms of isolation. You know, I mean, I, I go back in the day when, uh, you know, the Nautilus, remember the old Nautilus clubs? Yep, yep. You know, it's plug and play. You walk in the door, first machine, second machine, third machine, you go through the circuit, got your little card, you do your 12 reps, and you're out. And the idea was to tag uh, in isolated fashion, every one of these different muscle groups. Mm-hmm. And so we got brought up like that in health clubs for the long, I almost wrote a book about this, by the way, I was, had a big rant going on because in a health club back in the day, what you don't want to have is a lot of employees. You don't want to have to have people walking around the floor on payroll to explain how to do these exercises. Mm-hmm. So exercise devices by design are plug and play, walk up to it, look at the placard, put the pin in and move. Right. Mm-hmm. And you isolate. So then you create this segregation. So the segregation can lend to imbalances. So I really love doing the quad extension, but I hate doing hamstrings. Right. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I'm using that as an analogy, but you, you can very easily cause disruption while you're training simply because you function in such a segregated state. And so, you know, the new guard was functional exercise. Start thinking in terms of the movement patterns you're going to be approaching and how to approach them from a standpoint of training. And so what I really like about what you're doing is because, and and you brought it up and I'm glad you did, is isometrically, there's a a lot more engagement. When you you plug yourself in and, you know, contract isometrically, you're going to facilitate a lot more muscle. And just the collective approach to those contractions is different than pretty much anything that you do in in, in an isolated movement pattern. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I, I'm not an expert in this, but I, I would have to assume this aggregate approach to training like this is a great adjunct to dynamic movement. Yeah, well, that's the way we've always, that's the way we feel about it is because everybody wants to be so dynamic. Like everybody's all about, oh, I want to be, and so you're, we're trying to get them to realize before you get to that point, and if you were, if, if that's all you're doing and you're chronically getting hurt or you're having issues, then if you keep doing the same thing, then that makes you a little insane. So it's let's change something up just a little bit. Let's slow things down. Let's get you a little bit. Use that isometrics to strengthen those gaps that may need to be strengthened or deficiencies that need to be taken care of. And then let's see how much better that dynamic world is for you. Right? Well, I like the priming exercises that you do. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. You're setting yourself up for the exercise mm -hmm. by by engaging. You know, you you light up the central nervous system, you get things prepared, and you're 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 more apt to be able to produce more work. Very true. It's just logical. Yeah, we've gotten great response from our priming stuff. Yeah. I mean, from people that have used it. And, you know, that you get the stick, you get that, you get them isometrically activating the tissues through those movements, and then you put them under the load or actually in the movement itself without the stick and the feedback from people has been like, that felt fantastic. That have felt you, have really you good. Have you delved into the, to the CrossFit community with this? Yeah, we have a lot of, we have quite a few CrossFit coaches that uh, use the stick to help prime overhead lifts and squats and deadlifts. I would think that if they understood it, that they'd be really receptive to the process, you know, because obviously enough, they're, they're hell bent on producing as much work as possible. And obviously enough, just in the course of the way they train, they develop disruptions and corruptions and, you know, just being able to get, uh, you know, facial engagement alignments and things like this kind of sorted out in a priming fashion would be way beneficial for the lift. I think it's more of a mental roadblock more than anything. But it's with everything. It's got to be like the really hot guy that does it before anybody else wants to try. Because they're, they're so nervous that, you know, Pretty they're going to do something wrong. I wrote a program for CrossFit that actually, and I'm not even into CrossFit, but I wrote a program and I partnered with a guy that's very big in CrossFit that was crazy, but it's just really developing the energy systems. I said, you know, to me, when I see somebody laying on the floor after a workout, that, that represents failure to me. To me, I mean, I'd like to see you walk away from the work and still produce the work, mm -hmm. not have it just completely blow you out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's like a badge of honor. I said, I'd rather, I'd have more respect for the guy that could do the work and walk away from it. Right. Yeah, they can handle uh, that much volume. And, and so work. we we uh, I wrote a program. Uh, it's called uh, Training the Dark Horse. Is what it's mm -hmm. called, and it's all about how they approach the energy systems with the cardio to mitigate lactate production on the fly, get quicker at getting the the lact, uh, lactate out of the muscles, so they can continue to work and not be blown out, not be fatigued. I think that uh, in the same setting, what you guys do is another attribute to producing more functional work, you know, not getting blown out because it didn't cost them as much physically to do the work. I think there's something to be said for that. Again, like you guys and I, uh, I are like brothers in the, trying to send a message to people that sometimes, you know, it has barriers. You know, mm -hmm. if I train a top athlete, everybody wants to see me because the top athlete saw me, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of what it boils down to. But some of the best athletes I work with are not the best athletes from a standpoint of function, might might be genetically gifted, 
They might just have more grit than you. They they need work, and that's generally why I found them to begin with, or they found me. Well, so, I know you, your work with VJ yeah. is, is really good, and he's killing it on the uh, Spartan circuit. He just did a, he just did a thing. He just sent it on, on Instagram yesterday. Did this ninja course. Unbelievable. He went through this course in like 34 seconds. Oh. And I mean, just to be able to conduct yourself through this course at all is mm. insurmountable. And he burned through this thing. He ran a 426 mile on the track the other day. So for OCR, he's not the fastest run in the world. But, but when you combine the, the capacity to get through these obstacles and produce speed, that's a winning formula. That's why he's the guy right now. I tell you what, you know, had, had we not been shut down this year, he would have been the guy to beat. And mm. coming into 2021, now that things are going to start to open up again, Hopefully, they're going to be singing songs about this guy because, I mean, I know everybody in the mm. sport that matters, and I know what their capacities are, and I don't think there's anybody out there under 10 miles that can beat him. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the juice to to go long yet. He's still young, but inside of a 10 mile course, I don't think he's beatable. I really How old don't. is he? 22. Oh wow! Yeah, he's, he's still got, got so, so got much time. Developed, Jesus. I have clothes on right now. Develop some man strength still. <laughs> I tease him all the time. I say, yeah, the problem is your balls ain't dropped yet. <laughs> you know? No, but he's doing great. He's doing, he's doing great. He's a good kid. And, and I, I really do believe that, you know, within the next couple of years, he's going to be the guy. No question. I mean, I don't know what the sport's going to end up doing, but he's definitely going to be the guy. For those who don't know, VJ Jones, uh, if you look him up on Instagram, uh, he does the Spartan obstacle course races, and he's, yeah, 22. He's been killing it for a few years now, which is the crazy part. It's not even. It's not even just last year. He's been doing it for a few years now. Yeah, he won his he won his first pro race at 16. Yeah. Oh damn. Yeah. 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 So and and last year, well, not last, yeah, last year, I think he won eleven of fourteen races that he that he towed the line. And I don't I don't think he was off the podium for any of them. I don't think he was off the podium for any of them. I've been coaching him for three years now. I met him at the L.A. Stadium race. Those stadium races are brutal. You know, it's like three miles, you know, in and out of the the staircase of Dodger Stadium mm-hmm. or whatever stadium, uh, up and down the staircase, lifts, run, jump. You know, whatever you got to do for, he finished that course in 23 minutes the last time we, we did it. But when I met him, I met him at that, at one of those events, he came in six, was throwing up on the infield. He was blown out. And I told him, I said, you know, you just need a little help. He goes, wow, I thought I was killing. I said, yeah, you, you know, you got, you got this, you got the juice, but you just need a little help. And I've been working with him ever since. The next year he came back, he won, beat uh, Isaiah Vidal, who was the top uh, stadium racer in the country. He beat him by a few minutes. And, you know, we're talking about a, a, a 5K event. You beat somebody by a couple minutes. It's like That's you, can hear, crickets. you yeah, can hear yeah. crickets behind yeah. you. Finishing. And he, he uh, beat him handily the next two years at the same course. And I don't think anybody can beat him in that in that course. And definitely can't beat him in a, in a super distance, which is a, a 10K, at no matter what kind of terrain. Yeah, he's, he's going to be a guy to watch. That's awesome. Well, Richard, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate you spending your time and uh, dispensing some of your insight and wisdom that you've built up over the years. We really appreciate that. Is there, can you please give your, the listeners ways that they can find you or social sure. media website? I will. So um, diazhumanperformance.com is my site, my site, diazhumanperformance.com. Instagram handles at diazhp. 
Um, and I want to plug our clinic. We still have yes. spots. And I know it's going to sell out because people know you're coming. <laughs> Get some of the, the, the stick mobility training. Dr. Emily Spleichel's coming out. Yep. VO2 testing, gait analysis. I mean, for three days... You're gonna, your head's not gonna fit back on the plane if you fly out to see me because you're gonna be so blown up with information. Uh, it, it's, I'm just very excited for that. Um, we've been doing those clinics for years now. I don't think you can get more influence or education for the money anywhere if you're an athlete that you don't have to be an OCR athlete if you're just a runner or you just like a good workout because you know that remember the sand dunes? Yeah. The right, sand dunes, yeah. a, it's a beatdown. It, it really is a beatdown. So, but thank you guys. And I, I, West, I really love what you're doing. And uh, I'm sure that you guys are going to be spectacular. Oh, thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And same to you, Richard. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we love the relationship that we have. It's, it's, it's been great. Thank you for your support. Uh, your support's been fantastic. So we really treasure that. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, I will see you in January, sir. And uh, hopefully see some of you listeners out there jump in on the workshop and we'll see you oh out God. there also. Go to the website to get get registered. It's going to sell out. I don't know when this is going to get launched, but if they wait, they might be behind. Let's just say that. Sounds good. And until next episode, thank you for listening and uh, be good to each other. Right. Cheers, buddy.